0: Welcome to The Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. My big news, I am releasing my first online program called Stoic Meditations. The program consists of a series of contemplations designed to help you live the good life, to enhance your powers of perception, and live day to day with more gratitude and better perspective. Perhaps you've heard of Stoicism, or have some vague notion of it, well, in today's episode, I am going to share with you some of its core tenets, as well as a number of the Stoic practices that I present in the course. Now, my initial introduction to Stoicism came courtesy of my wife, Skylar, who often calls me Stoic due to my somewhat unflappable demeanor in response to cars full of screaming children, or when unforeseen misfortune strikes. Indeed, my Stoicism came in handy last year when our house was quite literally struck by lightning and Skylar and I had to extinguish the ensuing fire. The unemotional endurance of hardship, however, belies the true nature of Stoicism, which is best described as a dynamic philosophy of personal ethics which was founded by Zeno of Citium in the 3rd century BC. I won't delve too deeply into the history of Stoic philosophy here or in the course, but at its core, Stoicism is a system of logic and rationality applied to virtue. Stoicism lays out a path to eudaimonia, Greek for flourishing or well-being. Eudaimonia is achieved through living an ethical life, one in accordance with nature, and practicing the cardinal virtues of wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. And I dive deep into defining and untangling these virtues in the program. Now, the exercises in the course, a few of which I will address here in this podcast, are loosely framed around the three critical disciplines that are central to Stoicism, perception, action, and will. By refining the discipline of perception, we find mental clarity. By engaging in action that is ethical and just, we find purpose. And by exercising will, we learn how to identify and manage the things we cannot change, attain discernment, and find the resilience to deal with life's challenges. Stoicism is rife with aphorisms, often derived from the oratory and screeds of the three most famous Stoics, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. In fact, the repetitive recitation of these aphorisms is part of instilling the Stoic ethos. So the program, and Stoicism in general, are laced with wise maxims that can serve as mantras. Sometimes I find it helpful to repeat these adages quietly to myself to establish neural networks around them. The feeling of them begins to sink in through their repetition. stoic meditations are more like active contemplations versus Buddhist mindfulness practices like Vipassana. While meditation should not be confused with the cessation of thought. One of its goals is to tame the monkey mind, the notion that branches are thoughts and you are just swinging wildly from one to another, like a frantic primate. Now, I think we can all point to moments where we feel a lot of cognitive chaos. Meditation can reduce and slow down the number of cars on your mental highway, such that you can simply witness each thought appear and disappear without assigning it any valence or salience. Stoic practices are much more about concentrated attention onto one idea or thought such that a positive emotional state arises. Now, On the surface, many stoic contemplations can appear grim and morose in nature. Generally, humans feel a certain uneasiness in reflecting on their own mortality or imagining the loss of something treasured. We're just not trained to emotionally confront death or loss or grief. If anything, we're taught to ignore thoughts that elicit discomfort. But of course, at some juncture, we are forced to confront them. Now some people refer to stoic practices as negative visualizations. I consider them perspective enhancements for in the process of untangling these thought experiments, a very clear and galvanizing perspective on life emerges. You really begin to focus on what makes life worthwhile in the first place. And this remembrance begins to punctuate your life through the behaviors you start to adopt. While I do suggest engaging in the stoic practices in a quiet place where you can focus, you don't have to get too sanctimonious about constructing a crystal-laden puja or buying the right frankincense. You can practice these contemplations on a plane or in a taxi or while you wait in line at the grocery store. Personally, I love walking and working through stoic practices. In the end, you don't want these ideas to simply be confined to your sacred time. You want them integrated into your quotidian life to internalize them as part of your character or subconscious. Marcus Aurelius penned this exhortation in his famous personal writings known as Meditations. This is the mark of perfection of character to spend each day as if it were your last without frenzy, laziness, or any pretending. So in this spirit, let's get into some of the practices. Okay, meditation one, wanting what you have. Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. Epictetus. And despite the myriad differences we may all have, we all share one goal. We all want to be happy. And in our inexorable search, happiness can so often appear as something incessantly out there, something that we're chasing. We might think, if only and only if I get that house with the gargoyle statuary, or the lead role in that rom-com, or the dashing bachelor with the man bun, well then, then I'll be happy. But of course, once one does attain that thing, it doesn't take long for a shiny new object to appear on the horizon and the hedonic treadmill churns away once again. There always seems to be a gap between one and one's happiness. Now, one way to eliminate that gap is by continually chasing the things we want. But as we've seen, this solution provides only ephemeral results. There is always another conquest as the chasm of desire gapes back open. The other method of eliminating the gap is the focus of this meditation. We concentrate on wanting what we already have. Now, one way to do this is by envisioning something that you cherish that you currently have. Now, this could be a job or a family heirloom or even a loved one. And then imagine losing it or him or her. Now again, this sounds like it could be somewhat morose, but as you contemplate the preciousness of what you have, you will notice how your appreciation for it swells and gratitude wells up from somewhere inside of you. The gap between you and your happiness begins to dissipate when you start to love what you already have. Okay, so here's the praxis. Find something in your life that you cherish. It could be a physical object or relationship or something that you do. And after you've chosen it, really examine it. How does it make you feel? What memories does it invoke? Does it conjure certain smells or tastes? Does it give you ease? Take a moment to write down a description of this object or activity or person. So, for example, I grew up playing tennis and became quite an advanced player. And I still go out and play and pretend that I'm 20. I remember my dad feeding me balls as a kid. And I remember sitting in the back of our steaming hot station wagon with a wood panel on the side as my mother drove me to summer clinics. That olfactory memory of sun, sweat, and new tennis balls makes me feel carefree, and I'm so fortunate to be able to still get out of my head and just hit yellow fuzzy balls around with my friends. Now, you may have identified something else. And now that you've identified this treasured item or activity or bond, for just a minute, imagine losing it. Feel the grief associated with it not being there. Imagine how you might have treated it differently if you had known it would someday vanish from your life. Spend a little time in this feeling. Now, eventually bring yourself back to the triumphant reality that this thing remains present to you. Now, how will you cherish it now? How will you nurture it? Notice the gratitude that you feel for it. Notice how happy you are when you want something that you already have. He is a wise man who does not grieve for the things he has not, but rejoices for those which he has. Epictetus. Okay, the next meditation is titled Knowing What You Can Control. Stoicism's discipline of will addresses our attitude to things that are outside our control. Stoicism has influenced many religious and philosophical traditions, including modern Christian thought. The Serenity Prayer, written by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, encapsulates many core tenets of the Stoic philosophy. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. According to Stoicism, we don't control the world around us, only how we respond. Of course, we all want to influence the world in which we live in a manner that promotes well being. And the best way to do this, the Stoics would argue, would be by living a life of virtue. In other words, to concentrate on your own actions. Now, Marcus Aurelius wrote, you take things you don't control and you define them as good or bad. And so, of course, when the bad things happen or the good ones don't, you blame the gods and feel hatred for the people responsible or those who you decide to make responsible. Much of our bad behavior stems from trying to apply those criteria. If we limited good and bad to our own actions, we'd have no call to challenge God or to treat other people as enemies. So until we miraculously reify utopia, there will always be unfairness and cruelty. Witnessing or experiencing unscrupulous behavior can trigger emotions like anger and indignation. And while resentment can be motivating at times, chronic anger will degrade your health and your capacity for good discernment. Now, when you are angry, your amygdala, this small almond-shaped cluster of neurons in the medial temporal lobe of your brain, becomes activated. The amygdala is famously associated with fight or flight, your body's involuntary response to external threat. Amygdala activation triggers the release of cortisol, a neuromodulator that heightens alertness. This had a lot of utility on the Serengeti. However, protracted anger, or what I sometimes call amygdala hijack, can lead to a chronic release of cortisol which can heighten blood glucose levels and cause dysbiosis in the gut. Amygdala Hijack also mortgages one's ability to leverage the prefrontal cortex, the brain's locus of reason. And remember, when you feel angry, you are the one experiencing the discomfort. The instigator of your anger is off bowling or drinking pints at the pub. So instead of focusing on the purveyor of the injustice, concentrate on your own actions such that they are wise, just, courageous, and moderate. Okay, let's get into the practice. Now think about going outside into the freezing cold. While the bitter temperature elicits discomfort, you are keenly aware that you do not control nature's thermostat. So, you put on a sweater and a knit hat and you feel more at ease. You've exercised a simple form of perception, action, and will. Now, take a moment and meditate on a circumstance in your life that provokes a negative emotion or a negative judgment. Now, perhaps you've been betrayed by someone for whom you cared or you're enraged by the unseemly behavior of a public figure. Perhaps you have suffered from a traumatic event in your childhood. And maybe you've spent nights tossing and turning, furtively plotting revenge. Perhaps you've clutched the ember of vengeance waiting for just the right moment to throw it. But now you realize all that time it was you that was getting burned. The unethical actions of others are often like that bitter cold. You have no influence over them, but you can control your response. Marcus Aurelius said, waste no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. We cannot change the past deeds of others, but we can influence the future by taking action within our own lives in the present moment. Now think of a big circle that consists of all of life's vicissitudes, the good, the bad, the pleasurable, and hurtful. And within that space, there's a smaller circle labeled things I can control. Focus your will on the actions that address the contents of that smaller circle. As Aurelius wrote, be tolerant with others and strict with yourself. Okay, the last Stoic practice that I'll share with you here is known as Memento Mori. In his meditations, Marcus Aurelius wrote, You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Now, Memento Mori is the practice of acknowledging your mortality, or literally, remembering death. Now, this practice is central to numerous philosophical and spiritual traditions, including but not limited to Stoicism. In Buddhism, for example, there is a practice known as Maranasati, Sanskrit for mindfulness of death. The 11th century Buddhist scholar Atisha developed contemplations specifically focused on death awareness. These meditations concentrated on death's inevitability, its unpredictability, and its many causes, and remind us that at the time of death, our material resources are of little use, and even our loved ones cannot keep us from passing. In Greek antiquity, the philosopher Democritus built perspective and resilience by literally going into solitude and frequenting tombs. There is even an entire genre of 17th-century art called Vanitas that is designed to remind the viewer of their own mortality. Still life with a skull, a famous piece by the French painter Philippe de Champagne, features the three essentials of existence, the tulip representing life, the skull signifying death, and the hourglass indicating time. Now, meditating on your mortality is only morbid if you fail to see the point. It is a praxis for creating priority, meaning, perspective, and urgency. Now, death doesn't make life pointless, but rather purposeful. We've been gifted this precious, beautiful, imperfect, fleeting life. What will we make of it? Will we waste our time on the trivial and vain Or will we live courageously and strive to align our actions with our highest principles? The good news, we don't have to die to do this. But the reminder that someday we will, serves as a token to bring us closer to living the life we want. Okay, here's the praxis. You've likely engaged in this thought experiment, perhaps over a glass of wine or three. What would you do if you only had six months to live? What relationships would you mend? To whom would you apologize? What new experiences would you try? Create an inventory of the things you would do if death was imminent. Actually write them down. This is your new to-do list. Don't fret the small stuff. Returning emails or playing Minecraft can wait. Seneca wrote, Let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. The awareness of our inevitable and unpredictable death should serve as motivation to live a full and virtuous life. I hope you enjoyed this soliloquy on stoicism and a sneak peek into my program, Stoic Meditations. Now you can take the course for free with a 14 day trial to commune. Just go to onecommune.com stoic. I really appreciate you listening. And if you're so inclined, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcatcher and leave us a review. Also, we've started posting the video versions of our podcasts on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash one commune. Okay. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you.